All right, we're in action. So, we're beginning a new series this week, and we're calling it Jesus B.C. Jesus B.C., Jesus before Christ? Has David lost his mind? Maybe, but I do have an intention for this specific series. See, I believe that as church folks, we do a pretty good job of picturing God when we look at Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we see God's character. Jesus said, you see me, you see the Father. We see Jesus healer. We see him, he's kind. He's a servant. We see his holiness. We see all these characteristics of Jesus, and that's how we see God. Do we do as good a job when we picture God of the Old Testament? Abba, Father, God. When we picture that God, that that essence of God, do we picture it the same way we picture Jesus? Because it's the same. It's the same. The mission of this series is this. The God now is the same as the God before anything was spoken into existence. It was the same God in the garden with Adam and Eve. It was the same God with the prophets and the judges that led the Israelites out of Egypt. It's the same God that became man, emptied himself. It's the same God on the cross. It's the same God before we were here. It's the same God after you and me and everyone that's currently on this earth is going to be gone. Same God is alive, and everything about him is unchanging. This is the same God, and that is our, our message with this series. So we'll take this, this beautiful picture of the cruciform God, who we know God to be through Jesus, and we're going we're gonna to push that up against Old Testament God and see the parallels all throughout this. It's going to be a six-week journey. So each week, we will pick a different characteristic when we look at Christ and then check out Old Testament. What does it have to say about God there? This week, we're going to talk about the word holy. The trait of God we're going to look at this morning is holiness. So I'm going to, this is a really long definition, so I'm going to put it up here on the screen so you can see it. Set apart for God. Holy means set apart for God. It means God has separated something from everything else because he has a divine purpose for it. Set apart unto God, dedicated to God is what it means. Holy church, holy communion, holy people, holy week, holy avocado, holy avocado. <laughs> holy means set apart for God. And uh, the Old Testament is actually packed with scripture that talks about God's holiness. It's all over the place. I picked Isaiah 6. I think you'll see why. It's, it's one of the scriptures that's used most to talk about God's holiness. It's an amazing picture. I hope that God allows me to do justice to it this morning. And actually, we'll pray for that right now. God, your presence is here. We don't have to call you down. We don't have to summon you to, to show up here this morning. But you're here because... Followers of Jesus are gathered, God, and you are everywhere. Your spirit is here this morning, and we worship you. My ask is this, God. Simply help us to see your holiness today. Not all of it. I don't think I can handle it. But God, give me a glimpse of your holiness and use my words to be able to bring you glory. We ask that throughout the entire series. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we jump into this text, I think it's 487 in the Blue Bible, Isaiah 6. Before we jump into this text, you will notice the first few words of this say, in the year that King Uzziah died. 
And you probably have a few questions. This requires some context. First off, who is King Uzziah? Why did his parents hate him with a name like that? Why is his death significant? A lot of questions here. I'll give you the backstory quickly. Uzziah was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And when it came to the kings, they weren't all good. Uzziah was one of the good ones. He's recorded as one of the good kings. He did lots of stuff. He First, he became king when he was 16. When I was 16, I was cleaning rich people's golf clubs for eight bucks. He was king. He co-ruled with his dad for a while. He ruled for 52 years. Think of all the different leaders we've had in, in government for the past 52 years. The entire time it was Uzziah there. All right? 800 years before Jesus was on the scene. Why was Uzziah good? He did lots of awesome stuff. The Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So Judah was prospering. They had beat the Philistines. They were erecting these towers. Judah was a fortified place. The kingdom was thriving. It said that Uzziah even loved the soil, so he took care of the land there. He had vineyards, and it was prosperous. Everything was fruitful in every sense of the word. He got all the wise people together in the town to create what was a a catapult system that would protect the city. They could launch boulders and arrows over. Things were going good with Uzziah. He was a good king. And why was that? One of the reasons he was good was because he had somebody looking out for him, walking alongside him. Zechariah, the prophet, was much of Uzziah's life. He was his, he was his counselor. He would help him make godly decisions. He was, Zechariah was there to keep Uzziah's pride in check because when people are very powerful and they're very prideful, that is a, we know what happens. That's a destructive combination there. Business, um, politics, entertainment, sports, the church. When people are very powerful and prideful, bad things happen. So Zechariah was able to keep Uzziah good. He was able to keep his, his pride in check until Zechariah died. And then Uzziah didn't have this person in his ear the whole time trying to make sure that he was making good decisions. And that's where, that's where the story takes a tragic turn. That's where Uzziah made some really poor decisions. So we're going we're gonna to show you that on the screen. Second Chronicles 12, or 26, verses 16. Here we go. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Do you want to guess what happened next? The, the temple, the Holy of Holies back here, was accessible only to the high priests. It wasn't for an average Joe like one of us to walk in. It wasn't for the prophet, the great prophet to walk in. It wasn't for the king. There was no one allowed in this space because it represented God's holiness. This is something we'll understand a little bit more this morning. But because of God's amazing, unsearchable holiness, only the priest could enter this space. Uzziah didn't really care. Remember, his pride started to swell, so he said, I'm, go- I'm going to go for it. So he walks in into the, the temple, and he's, meted, he's, he's greeted there by Azariah. Azariah is one of the priests. Azariah grabs 80 other priests, is what its scripture says. They stood in front of the king, and they said, hold on a second. You can't do this. Stop right where you are. You're being unfaithful to God. You need to leave right now. They said this to the king. King's mad. Uzziah is not going to take this, right? Who's going to challenge my authority? I'm going after this. So he picks up the censer, and he starts to walk toward the altar. Do you know what happened? Boom, he broke out. Pimples, zits all over his head. 
I'm just kidding. He got leprosy. <laughs> he got leprosy, which is much, much worse than adult acne. I want to side note here. Wouldn't it have been nice if we would have been told about adult acne? I think this is a symptom of the fall that didn't make it into the scriptures. So the good things about high school, no responsibility, maybe work two days a week, eat whatever you want, sleep in. Those are all going to be gone, but you're still going to get acne. (laughs) And it'll only come up, though, like when you're getting your picture taken or like a a big occasion. So anyway, this was much worse than adult acne. Uh, Uzziah had leprosy. And he knew it right away. The scripture says this. He knew it. All the priests knew it. God is judging him right now. This is exactly what's happening. So they quarantined him. For He lived another 11 years. Uzziah was put away. Can't have any contact with anybody else. And he died a leper because he came into the Holy of Holies. His son Jotham became the king. I say all this. We're not even in our scripture yet. I say this because I think we need to talk backstory before we hit Isaiah chapter 6. So I I will read this here uh, this morning if you want to follow along with me. It says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's a big scene right there. There's a lot going on. Let's take a few pieces here and talk about it. Number one, in this vision that Isaiah had, what is going on with this temple? Popular belief is basically one of two things. First, it could be Solomon's temple. In this vision, it could be Solomon's temple. A couple problems with that. Number one, there's a throne there. He talks about the throne. Don't often see those in temples. They're mostly in palaces. So when he walks in there and he's in the midst of this throne and all these things are going on, he knows that it probably can't be Solomon's temple. It's got to be something more. The grandeur of the whole thing, the, the seraphim, the smoke, all these things he's describing you got to be something else. What most scholars actually believe is going on here is that Isaiah's vision is God's heavenly throne. This is the heavenly court that Isaiah has come upon and is experiencing God in his essence in heaven. So let's talk about the seraphim. That's the next thing here. When most people think of seraphim, we think of angels. When most people think of angels, we think of fat little babies with rosy cheeks and cloth diapers and cupid wings. That is a precious moment type of angel. That's not a biblical angel. Uh, what, what we can help us, what will help us understand seraphim better is the root of the word seraph is actually burning one. Burning one. That's very different from the angel that we may have grown up thinking about. Burning one. I didn't say burning man. Burning man is when 70,000 people go to the desert and half naked with beards and build idols. It's in, it's in Exodus. You should check it out. No, these burning ones, these burning ones were something totally different. They were totally different. This is the only spot in the Bible where it mentions seraphim in the entire Bible. And if it looks as if, because of their access and their closeness to God, that they might even be above angels. And if we think about angels in the Bible, every time they appeared, what do they start with? Don't be afraid. 
a, a baby with, with Cupid wings is not going to say that. These are probably terrifying creatures, something to truly behold. And it says that each of them had six wings. So the first pair was covering the face. What's going on with that? The seraphim, even though they, they, they reside in the heavenly realms, could not directly even look upon God. His holiness was so much that they couldn't even bear to face their creator. He's their creator like he is ours. They couldn't even look at him directly. Second set of wings, he said, were covering their feet. What's going on there? Think about Moses. I think this is Exodus 3 in the burning bush. And God says, Moses, Moses, come here. Here I am, Lord. Come forward. Remove your sandals for you are, you're entering holy ground. And that's what Moses does. He takes off his shoes to, to tell God, you're the creator. I am the created. I am earthly. I am creaturely. And I'm, I'm submitting to you in this moment. That's, that's kind of what the angels were doing here. Third set of wings, use them to fly. No big deal. So, the seraph said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In, 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 Hebrew, in, in Hebrew literature, when they want to emphasize importance, you, a lot of you probably know this, repetition. And say things a few times. In the English language, we have lots of ways to do this. You can bold a word. You can, you can underline it, italicize it. If you want no one to like you, you can all caps it. There's lots of different ways to show emphasis. It wasn't so much that way. You didn't have the word very and extremely used a lot in Hebrew. They just repeated words. Think about Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. This is very important. We should be listening. The seraphs here didn't say, Almighty God is holy. They didn't say, God is holy, holy. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Three times there. There are only a handful of other times in Scripture where we see three in a row. I think Revelation, they use the word woe a few times, three times in a row. But I'll, but I'll say this and remember this. Nowhere else in the entire Bible... Does it give an attribute of God three times in a row? Okay? Nowhere do you see God is love, love, love. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Holy is the only one that is illustrated like that. And I believe that is because holy is the most important attribute of God. I know that is a very bold thing to say, but I think God's holiness is the most important thing about him. There are so many beautiful things about God that if, if he weren't just like that, it would, be a, it would be a grim situation for us. But without holiness, try to follow this, none of the other stuff matters. Holiness, God's absolute otherness, is necessary because without that, what does his love really mean to us? What is his mercy? If he's not the ultimate other person where his authority cannot be challenged, all the other stuff just kind of falls away. He is the infinite reference point. God's eternal divine purpose is found in himself and nowhere else. There is no one else who has as much value or worth as God. And holiness, I think, is the most important because it is the foundation upon which all of God's other characteristics hinge. God has to be holy. God has to be. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. What is going on here with holiness versus glory? What's the difference? I'll, I'll teach you the way that I was taught. Think of it as holiness is basically God's glory that hasn't been expressed yet. Or, or the other way around. Think of it like this. God's glory is his holiness on display for us to see. It's publicly proclaimed. That's what God's glory is. His holiness out here that we can get a glimpse of it. The whole earth is full of your expressed holiness. So when we look out here and we see glimpses of God's glory, it points to just how unfathomably holy he truly is. And when the seraphs proclaimed these words and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the temple shook. The very foundations of the building were moving. Inanimate objects, metal and wood were vibrating on themselves. If we don't praise him, the rocks will. God is holy. And what does Isaiah do when he sees this scene? This is where we will pick up. If you're following, it's verse 5 to 7. Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. <laughs> what happens when Isaiah encounters the most holy God? What happens? He is convicted of his not-so-holiness. <laughs> He's convicted of his, his inadequacy. The mark of rebellion on his heart is right there for him to see. It's like a mirror here when, when Isaiah sees the most holy God. And he says, I am ruined. The old translations say, I am undone, is what Isaiah says. I like those better because I can picture this. Isaiah feels unraveled. He feels broken at the seams. He feels in a thousand pieces when, he's, when he looks upon the holiness of God. Nothing that he's seen before. If there was a man that, was, that was, would be okay to sustain a situation like this, it's the great prophet. He was the most righteous man in this nation. Everyone looked to him as the moral guide. And even then, this beacon of virtue... Isaiah gets one glimpse of God and he is shattered, completely broken there. The ultimate standard, the fixed reference point next to Isaiah shows him all that he lacks on his own. You may have uh, heard of Ravi Zacharias. He's a, he's a Christian apologist. He's been doing this for 30 years. What he does is he travels around the world and he defends the Christian worldview. A lot of times in very hostile environments. Where he's not well received. And he does this and shares the gospel. And he, he's always friendly. He never talks down to people. But sometimes he just has some amazing wit about him. And uh, he tells this one story. About he was speaking I think at an, at an Ivy League school. And a lot of Christians show up. Because they love to hear him. There was one guy here who just could not wait. Till the Q&A part. So he's standing there, and Ravi would be up here talking about the gospel and sharing the news of Jesus and, you know, wrestling with what it means rationally. And this guy looks visibly frustrated. He is uncomfortable, shaking in his seat and rolling his eyes, Ravi explains. And then Ravi knew while he was talking, this guy's going to come up here and he's going to challenge me. I know that he's going to have something to say. 
But remember, Ravi's been doing this for a long time, and he's armed with the Spirit. <laughs> so Q&A part comes. Sure enough, the first person that lines up at the microphone is this student. And he, he walks up to the microphone, as Ravi describes it, and he says, Dr. Zacharias, I'd have just one question for you here, because I think, I think you're missing something. I've got this one question for you. And Ravi comes to the microphone and listens, looks him directly in the eye. And the, and the student says, how do I know that I exist? And Ravi approaches the mic and again, looking at him kindly, and, and he just says to the student, to whom should I direct my response? <laughs> and that is the kind of wit that he has, just shutting people down in the most lovingly way, but also lifting Jesus up. I saw Ravi Zacharias speak, and here's a picture of it. He came to my alma mater, UK, and we were in the nosebleeds. I didn't care. I just wanted to hear him talk. Uh, and when he was there, he told stories. And one of the stories that stuck with me is he said this. I was at, on the road traveling somewhere. All the stories start like that. And he was having a meal with these two gentlemen. And one of the guys the entire time would always direct the conversation to the world is so evil. The world is so broken. There's violence. There's, there's poverty. There's corruption. The world is so evil. The world is so evil. The world is so evil. That's all this guy would talk about. The other guy there with Ravi finally looked at this guy talking about the problem of evil. And he said, hey, look, I've noticed that you're constantly talking about this desire to fix the problem of evil in the world. I noticed that. And I just have to ask, are you as equally troubled to fix the problem of evil in you? Isaiah said, I am the problem. Isaiah said, I have unclean lips. It is me, I am unclean. And who makes the move to resolve this in the scripture? Who does it? Does Isaiah sit there and say, 10 Hail Marys? No, Mary wasn't born for 750 years. Does he sit there and try to will himself into something good? Does he say, how can I fix this myself? He doesn't even ask God to, to help him. But God, out of his love, sends the seraph, yes, this is still loving, with a hot coal to Isaiah's mouth. God, seemingly without a second of hesitation, does this. He bridges the gap. Why the tongue? Well, because Scripture says we can see a person's heart through what comes from their mouth. Think about this, that story with Jesus where the Pharisees were, were getting all legalistic with him and attacking him about dietary stuff. What does Jesus say? It's not the stuff that man puts in his mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth that defiles him. This was the sign here that Isaiah was getting. I have unclean lips. Something Isaiah never could have done for himself in this broken, unraveled, undone state. And in the midst of the, probably the worst feeling that Isaiah's ever had as he's here in a shell of himself next to the holy and almighty God, God reaches out to him out of love. He makes him whole. He fulfills his inadequacy and says, your guilt is gone. What does Isaiah do? What does Isaiah do? This becomes our call to action here too. Let's finish this up. This is verse 8. Isaiah responds. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. If you are a follower of Jesus, that means that at some point in your life, you had to sit there and face your emptiness. It means that at some point, the mark of rebellion became apparent to you. Hopefully not all in one terrifying glimpse like Isaiah, but piece by piece, we start to see the darkness in our hearts. That's part of following Jesus. It's happened. But just as the holy, 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 almighty God reached out for Isaiah before he could do anything for himself, does the same thing for us, the same exact thing. He makes up the distance. He says, I will wipe it away. Your guilt is gone, full atonement. And what is our response? What is our response? Is it like Isaiah's? Or do we sit back and kind of enjoy the ride? Thank you, God. Thank you for taking care of me. I can have an enjoyable life now. Do we, do we sit back and do nothing? Or do we do what Isaiah does? I think this is what we're called to do, to jump into action. Here I am, God. Send me. I have seen my brokenness. You have made it right. I am ready. I am here for you now. That's exactly what Isaiah does. It's what we should do. You probably have heard this story, but in the, the times, uh, early 1900s, they wrote a, a letter basically to all the famous authors of the day, all the famous writers. And the question was one question, but they wanted to solicit all these responses. The question was this, what's wrong with the world today? The world's always been broken. It's always been troublesome throughout all of history. And the Times wanted to hear from some of the smartest writers in the day. What's wrong with the world today? And tons of them responded. And they had volumes and volumes of a philosophical explanation. You know, it's this and this and this. This is what's wrong with the world today. To that question, though, there was one response that we still have today because it was so memorable and so profound. To the question, what's wrong with the world today, G.K. Chesterton had a response. I'm going to put it on the screen here. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. God is holy, 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 ineffable light. There is none other like him because God is the way he is, we are holy. Because we are image bearers, we are holy. God has set us apart for a specific mission. Our mission is to worship and love God. Our mission is to seek and save the lost. And our mission is to start to chip away at this problem of evil in the world. How do we do that? Start right here with us. That's how we do it. That means every single day approaching God and saying, holy, holy, holy God, I give it to you. I let you take care of this. I let you wipe all this away. That's our response. God, thank you for your presence in this place this morning. Thank you for being holy. Thank you for allowing nothing to exist that can possibly touch you. You are unshakable. You are unmovable throughout the years, long after we're gone, God. And we need that. Without that, we are nothing. 
So I thank you for your holiness. I thank you for your provision. God, watch over this church. Help us to be bold. And thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you, holy God. Amen.